All right, so we are in our second to last uh, teaching in the whole story series. Next week is our culmination of the past four months. Uh, this week, though, is a peak on the way to the summit. So next week is about the good news of the glory that we get to share with God in his presence with new bodies, new heaven, new earth. And it is going to be a great celebration. Today is a peak on the way to the summit because it's a convergence of all the themes we've been talking about so far coming to a point. And, uh, and I would argue it's a very satisfying point. Now, in order to help us get here, I want to start with uh, an, in, like some interaction with you guys. Um, so I actually need a volunteer. Uh, would you raise your hand if you're willing to come up here for about two minutes, answer some yes or no questions, and let me have some fun with you? Would you raise your hand if you're willing to let me do that? Keith Johnson. Medal of Honor goes to this guy. <laughs> He's the only one. How many people are here? He's the only one that raised his hand. You may regret this. That's true. Keith, that's for you. Uh, so Keith, I'm just going to ask you a couple of quick questions. It might okay. be a little awkward. Uh, you can answer simply, mostly yes or no. I'm not trying to trap you. You don't okay. need to overthink it. Thanks for putting up with us. Uh, Keith, first question. Do you think you're a good person? Eh... Okay. Well, are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Yes. Okay. So we're going to use that to figure out, eh, are you okay. thumbs up, thumbs down, okay? Okay. We're only, only going to use a couple of them just for sake of time. Now, uh, commandment number nine is essentially about lying. So, Keith, have you ever told a lie? Yes. Okay. Yes. What do you call someone who tells lies? Liar. Okay. Commandment number eight is talking about thievery. Uh, Keith, have you ever stolen anything in your whole life? No. Okay, that's great. Congratulations. Uh, question number three is actually from uh, the third commandment. It's about blasphemy, using the name of the Lord God in vain. Uh, one example of that is swearing, using God's name as a swear word, uh, though there's more to it. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Sadly, yes. Okay. Again, that's called blasphemy. It is very serious. In the Old Testament, it was actually punishable by death. Okay, Swell. last question. <laughs> the, the seventh commandment is actually tied to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that anyone who looks at another human with lust in their heart has already committed adultery. Have you ever looked at another person with lust? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Keith, you've answered three of those questions in the affirmative. Now, I'm not judging you. I would have answered all four positively. I would have said yes to all four. So, I'm not judging you. But by your own admission, mm -hmm. you're a, living, or excuse me, a lying, blaspheming adulterer at heart. Ouch. Are you a good person? Well, by that, no. <laughs> okay, so if God were to judge you by the Ten Commandments as a metric or a rubric, would you be innocent or guilty? Oh, I'd be guilty. Keith, thanks for your time. You bet. Thanks for letting me poke some fun at you. Now, we all get an opportunity... <laughs> we all get an opportunity to join in your suffering. How many of you, as you were listening to Keith... Would have, had, would have said yes to the majority of those questions. Thank you. Now, here is where we're going. Um, our grounding text for today is out of Romans chapter 3. And verse 23 says this. It has cutting honesty. It says, quote, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for those of you that didn't raise your hand, that either means you're lying or you're not very self-aware. <laughs> now, 
The Bible tells us that God created a kingdom and that he is the king and he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. It also tells us that Adam and Eve rejected this call and this led to sin and death for all of us. The reason it led to sin and death is because God is good. And so everything that he wants and everything that he instructs us to do then will lead to human flourishing and human peace and human wholeness. And so to rebel against God who is good is evil. Is that fair? Now, because we are the ones rebelling against God and because we are the ones who are participating in evil, we feel guilty. And then because we feel guilty, we get defensive. So God gave human beings instruction on right and wrong, also known in scripture as the law. And when we evaluate ourselves against God's law, like we just did with Keith, we come out looking and feeling pretty guilty, right? So we ignore it, or we rewrite it, or we call God mean for holding us to it. But the logical thing is not to hate the law, right? The law is an expression of God's righteousness because God isn't up like struggling with lying and stealing and lust and blasphemy. God doesn't struggle with that. He is goodness in himself. And so we should admire him for his goodness in the law rather than being upset by it. Now, the simple fact is that evil does exist in the world, right? Whether it's big or small, subtle or obvious, God has three options. And, and these are like my assumptions. I'm not putting God in a box, but he has three kind of options of what to do with evil. Option number one is he can ignore it. Option number two is he can destroy it. And option number three is he can fix it. Option one, to ignore it, is I think pretty obviously both stupid and wrong because it's unjust. To ignore evil knowingly and to let it continue without any intervention is wrong. Option number two, to destroy evil then is fair and it is actually noble. To face evil and to conquer it is good and it's right. But it sucks because that means you and I, right? Option number three is to repair it or in biblical language, to redeem it. That sounds like a pretty good option. Let's take door number three, right? And this is our conversation today. It's how is God redeeming, repairing you and I through the term justification? That's our topic for today, justification. So here's our roadmap. We're basically gonna look at three big questions. What is justification? What's the cost of justification and what's the byproduct of justification? Uh, really simply, we're just saying, what is it? How do we get it? What happens when you have it? Okay? So we're going to begin by reading our grounding text, which is Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 28. Would you turn to Romans chapter 3 with me? I'm going to start reading. It's on the screen, but also take your time in turning there. It says this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it. Now the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. A simple summary of that is that the goodness of God is revealed in the law and all have sinned and fall short of this standard of righteousness. Also, the goodness of God is embodied in Jesus who gives himself as payment for sin's penalty and he gives his record of righteousness as a gift to justify his people received through faith. So what is justification? Theologically, there's three layers to this. And this is a really uh, simple but helpful illustration. Uh, You can see on the left-hand side is a circle. That's you. Uh, The default reality of all of humanity is that we have fallen short. All have sinned. All have fallen short. You and I, inside of us, carry a negative balance, so to speak. We carry guilt and debt because of the sin that we've knowingly and unknowingly participated in. And so we've actually also inherited this from Adam and Eve who rejected God's call. So every day, you and I are walking around with negative balances. Simply put, we're guilty. We owe. Now, Jesus, he gave himself as the suffering servant, which you'll remember, in order to pay this penalty or to pay the debt of our sins. So you can see underneath that, God has addressed it through Jesus's death. And what that's done is it's wiped all the negative off of us, leaving us the middle circle. We're now a blank slate. There's no negative, but now we're just kind of at a zero balance, if that's helpful to think of it in that way. We no longer owe anything, and at his resurrection, he proved, he's the receipt that says he was successful. Everything has been wiped off of me. I owe nothing. But at this point, we're innocent, sure, until we sin again. But Jesus does not stop there. He then continues. He pays our debt and gives us full access to his bank account, if that metaphor is helpful. He gives us his full righteousness imparted onto us. So now, if we go back to Romans, it says, quote, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. The righteousness of God is now imparted onto those who believe because Jesus lived perfectly. He lived the same way that you and I were supposed to every single moment. He did that perfectly as the son of God. So he now is an eternal well of righteousness, an eternal well of righteousness that we have full, uninhibited access to. So he's put his righteousness onto you. You're not, no longer are you in debt, nor do you have a zero balance, but you now have access to his immense wealth of righteousness. Now, uh, justified is primarily a legal concept, but it's used three ways in the Bible. Uh, The first way is primarily in the Old Testament. It means to make someone righteous, meaning like you're actually changing someone, you're molding them to be more righteous. The second way is to display or demonstrate 
that someone is righteous or the, the, the righteousness in them is coming out. This is, uh, if you're familiar with James chapter two, where it says, so also by faith itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. You see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is not saying you are legally innocent by your works, but rather the righteousness God has begun in you is now displaying itself it's now justifying itself outside of you. That's what that's saying. The way that Paul is using it is a little bit different. This is the third one. This is a legal declaration. I am pronouncing you righteous. That's the language of Paul in Romans chapter three. And uh, think about this. Paul was a Pharisee, right? Uh, that means he was a religious teacher. And what did he teach? He taught the law. Paul was a lawyer. He was a Pharisee's version of a lawyer. And so he was using justification in a legal sense. Imagine you're in court and there's a stack of fines due to your misconduct. Jesus then walks into the courtroom, pays the penalty in your place, so the judge can righteously smack the gavel, send you out the door an innocent man or woman. That's the sense that Paul's using it. You are declared legally there is no hold on you. You are righteous. Now, um, here's the amazing thing about this. Jesus's legal justification applies to the past, present, and future of his followers. What that means is you are already pardoned as a follower of Jesus for the sins and crimes you do not yet know you will commit. Already pardoned, already paid. Would you look at Romans 3, middle of that paragraph, verse 25 and 26. It says this. Halfway through verse 25, right after the period. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, contextually, Paul's talking about all the people who lived before Jesus. That's who he's specifically talking about. Everyone before Jesus, who it wasn't that God was ignoring evil, passing over it with a blind eye, but he was waiting until Jesus came to give them what they deserved. He was waiting to redeem them. So he let them live and then ascribed retroactively Jesus's righteousness. Now, if that sounds a little bit weird, just remember that God exists outside of time. God made time. God made space, and then he put stuff in it. So for God, he's actually outside of a linear timeline, unlike you and I. Now, uh, this same idea about God retroactively or outside of time, applying Jesus's redemption, uh, it also is a legitimate interpretation for you and I because God would be right to destroy you and I the instant we lie, stole, blasphemed, committed adultery. That list goes on. But he forbears, meaning he waits patiently. He restrains the penalty so that he can apply Jesus' payment, apply Jesus' justice instead of taking that out on us. So let's walk through those three categories really quick. If you've been forgiven of your past, it means from the day you were born or conceived 
through today, 18 seconds ago, it is paid for, already forgiven. It means that in this moment, the things you're struggling with, the things you don't want to tell your friends, those are paid, already forgiven, known and forgiven. Future tense. The things that will happen on the car ride home or this summer or 20 years from now. Already known, paid, forgiven. What you will do, what you've done in the past, what you're doing now, what you will do in the future will not be held against you, Christian. It will not be held against you because it's already known, already paid, already forgiven. Is this not good news? This is the news that we luxuriate in. We just rest in this. This is why we're here this morning. I don't think any of us showed up here because, man, I'm really excited to be guilt tripped today. No, we gathered here because Jesus has paid for it, but I'm forgetting. Right now, I'm forgetting and I need someone to remind me. I need to sing songs. I need to pray. I need to hear his word preached because I am forgetting. Now, let me ask you an uncomfortable question. Are you righteous? This is not a, a trap. I, I know I asked Keith a little bit ago, are you a good person? That was for a different purpose. But are you righteous? How do you feel about your own righteousness? Thankfully, it's not mine. Here's why I ask. A lot of us who are following Jesus, we get caught in this like, eh, I know I'm kind of a mess. Eh, Jesus... I would like to very conclusively tell you, you are a righteous person. Are you in sin? Yes. Does God hold it against you for a millisecond? No, because he has already known it. He has already paid for it. So in God's eyes, you are perfect. Why? Because you wear the righteousness of Jesus. You wear the righteousness of Jesus. You're not a good person, but you are a righteous person because Jesus has covered you. Now, God is not stupid, right? He's not a pirate who's like, oh no, I can't see your sin. Like it's not there. No, like our sin, it's heartbreaking, right? Our sin is horrible. It is hateful, but he pays for it. He paid past tense for it. So it is resolved. If you remember two weeks ago, it is finished. That is the good news of Jesus. That's why we're here today. And Jesus knew that you, me, everyone else, for all of history, we would never be able to dig ourselves out of the hole of our debt. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together to concoct this brilliant, miraculous plan where they would get together to save the world. They would pull us out of our mess and overlay the righteousness of Jesus onto his followers, those who believe through faith. There's two other aspects of justification. We've been talking about the legal side. And unfortunately, most of us, when we think of a courtroom, it gets really cold and frigid and unemotional. So I want to give you two more things that are legitimate interpretations of, righteous, of justification. One is rescue. Because we're not only in debt to sin, we are slaves to sin. And so when Jesus redeems us and gives us his righteousness, he is coming into the pit of your sin and slavery and rescuing you. He's on a rescue mission. 
Another layer I want to add is that Jesus is reconciling us because sin results in relational pain and relational separation. Sin cannot exist in a loving communion with God. And so we are cut off from that. We're cut off from his loving and life-giving presence. And we become isolated in our own chamber of sin. But by paying our debt, by making us righteous, by rescuing us from sin, God repairs that relational connection. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, that's what this is. The son who leaves the father, who's separated by his own selfishness, by his own pursuit of pleasure, by his own disregard of the father. The moment he comes back, the father rushes to him with a reconciliation of relationship. He gives him his ring. He gives him his cloak. He throws a party. He restores the relationship. What that means in the idea of justification means that you as a follower of Jesus are legally justified. It means that you are rescued and it means that you are relationally reconciled. Those are all the layers that go into it. So if that's what justification is, it means legal reconciliation, means rescue, or legal, uh, excuse me, justification, rescue and reconciliation. What does it cost? How do we get it? Go back to Romans chapter 3 with me and look at chapter 20 or verse 23 through 25. Quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, we'll get to that word, by his blood to be received by faith. Very clearly, justification is a gift, right? A gift. That means it's free. So when someone buys you a birthday present, do you pay for it? No, it's, it's a gift. It's free to you. And they paid for it, didn't they? They had to go out. They had to use the charge card. So first we're going to talk about the giver of the gift and what it cost him. And then we're going to talk about the receiver of the gift and what it costs us. Now, there's a unique word in verse 25, which I pointed at, which is this, propitiation. Jesus Christ, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let's talk about that. So propitiation is another very specific theological term. Uh, And here's what it means. It means, uh, or it's almost always used in conjunction with justification. They often go together. So a propitiation is something that is either given or done that satisfies or appeases judgment or wrath. So there's a judgment against you, it satisfies or it appeases it. Or there's anger against your evil, it satisfies, it appeases it. Now, this can sound like kind of a pagan idea where you've got like angry God, I'm gonna bring you some like a bowl of nuts or like I gotta do something to make this unpredictable deity happy, right? That idea is, that idea is very different from biblical propitiation. So. Within the Bible, the idea is that God does have wrath. If you've excluded wrath from your version of God, it means rather than carving an idol with a knife or a chisel, you've carved an idol with your intellect or your opinion. The wrath of God is real and it's good and like totally terrifying, but it's real and it's in scripture. We cannot cut it out. Now, the wrath of God is due to our sin and our sin deserves judgment. 
right? To destroy sin is noble and fair. But though God is love, he will not uh, just throw justice out the window because he wants to show mercy. He is love, but he will not throw justice out the window in order to show mercy. Propitiation is the way that he balances or, or wraps together both mercy and justice. He shows mercy while upholding justice. Here's how he does it. Propitiation in the Bible is not something that we give to God. It's not the bowl of fruit or the fattened calf, it's whatever. It's not that. In the Bible, propitiation is what God provides for us to combine justice and mercy so we can be forgiven and accepted. And he does this at his expense through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus at the cross is our propitiation. He's satisfying, he's appeasing the judgment and the wrath of God. But he's not doing that in order to get like mad old God the Father to love us again. He's not appeasing an angry, uh, unpredictable God. He's on the cross because God the Father loved us before time. He loved us as he created the world. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, united forces collaborating in this miracle of justice and mercy. So Jesus willingly acts as both the propitiator, meaning the giver of the gift, and the propitiation, meaning the gift itself. In biblical language, he is both priest and sacrifice. Now, Christ's death as propitiation, we needed this to be reconciled with God. It could not have been another way. It cannot, as we read in Psalm 49 this morning, there's this one line in there, who can pay a ransom for a man's soul? You cannot pay the ransom for your own soul. I, no matter how hard I try to be good, cannot pay the ransom of any other person in this room. And, and neither can anyone pay the ransom for another person. So at best, it's folly to believe that, which is why the divinity of Jesus is so important. Because Jesus was fully man and fully God, right? Fully God, fully man. And so he's then able to substitute himself in place of other human beings. A helpful line for me is only God can bear the wrath of God. Only God himself can bear the wrath of God, which is why God gave himself as Jesus for us. And it took his self-sacrifice, the son of God, in love for us. Remember, in love. He gave himself in love. When you get a birthday present, how do you feel when you receive that? You feel loved, right, when you receive a gift. Because the givers, unless they're a really crappy giver, they're not saying like, oh yeah, I hope you really love me because of this. No, they're saying this is an, an act of selfless love. I want to celebrate you. I want to give this to you. Jesus wants us to know that his act of self-sacrifice was by love for us. Will you receive that? Now let's talk then about the gift receiver and what is our cost. Um, let's go back to Romans 3, verse 24 and 25 again, picking up halfway through. It says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? 
faith. Now, it can be really hard to know what to do with words like faith and belief, right? They're pretty intangible. Uh, for me, it's like, okay, got it. Grace received by faith. How much faith? <laughs> what happens when my faith goes up and down? What about when I'm distracted? What about when I'm having an off week? Right? What about when I'm angry? How does faith come into this? So the best way that I can illustrate faith is by going back to the courtroom. Uh, we've incurred fines due to our misconduct and Jesus walks in. So imagine you're standing before the judge, guilty, no argument, flat out. The judge issues a penalty. Jesus steps forward and he says, your honor, you know me, I have a perfect record. I would like to take their penalty and I ask, would you please treat this man or the woman as if they were me? I would like to give my righteousness, my record to them. Before I go further, I want to pause because this is the gospel that is going on right now for all of humanity. Like this is not just an illustration. This is not just for like a couple of Christians here and there. This is the, the reality of, of the whole world for everybody is we are guilty before a judge and Jesus has just come in and said, I'm here to pay it. Would you let me? That is the gospel that is present on the whole world right now. And we respond to the gospel in some mixed ways because there's one type of person that says, no, Jesus, I'm okay. You know, in fact, judge, I'm not that bad of a person. I think if you looked at everyone else back here, you'd find that I stack up pretty good. I'd like you to judge me based on my record because I think I'm okay. Not that bad. That's a very real life response that many people have to Jesus Christ and God. I'm not that bad. You should see some of the other guys. At least I'm not, not on the news this week. Like, woof. Um, now there's another group of people um, that come in and, and I would call this like the faith plus works people. Um, and, and this is many of us at, at given points. And that response is something like, hey, Jesus, thanks so much for your offer. Thanks for stepping in. But you know what? I've actually got most of it. Could I just take a little bit from you? Could I just fill in some gaps? Or, or another version of that is, um, oh, Jesus, like, gosh, I could never take that from you. You're too good. I'm kind of miserable. Like, I don't know if I'm real. Let me earn myself a little bit more. Let me, let me pay off some of it, and then I'll take some from you. Because I feel really bad just taking it all from you. But what Jesus here is saying, he's saying, it's received by faith, faith alone. And so that looks like in the courtroom, judge, I'm guilty. I don't even have an argument. Jesus, I don't even know how to respond to you, please. Please. If you don't step in, I'm destroyed. Would you please pay everything? I want your righteousness, I need you and I will be yours forever. Whatever I need to do from here on out, I'm yours. What do you want? It's yours. You take everything. That is what faith in this moment is. It's not, not a like, oh, Jesus, thanks for giving me some, or oh, I could never really, but Jesus, I'm lost without you. Would you please? That's faith. That's what it means to respond in faith. So it means to trust him enough to let him step in. 
You have to let him step in. I don't know what the thing is that makes us not want to. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's unworthy. You don't actually love me, but there's things that say, Jesus, I know you're offering, but no. It's different for all of us, but he's wanting to step in. So we have to trust him enough to step in. And then we have to trust that he really does pay your debt and give you his righteousness. Because otherwise, we're going to be back before the judge every day in our mind's eye, trying to earn it again and again. Judge, what do I got to do to be not guilty? Rather than saying, no, judge, Jesus already paid this. I'm out of here. I'm an innocent man. Jesus already paid this. So though it costs everything, or excuse me, though it costs nothing but faith, that posture or that faith will touch everything. It is impossible to receive that through faith and not be affected. Costs nothing, changes everything. So what then is the byproduct? What changes as a result? I'm specifically using that word byproduct because so far we've been talking about the effect of justification. What does it mean when it's implemented? But now we're talking about what changes afterward, okay? So this is what happens as we ongoingly, every single day, walk in faith over the entirety of our lives, receiving his redemption and propitiation through faith. There's three things that come of it, and there's more, but just to keep it short, the first one is sturdiness and joy. Sturdiness and joy. Because our justification is not temporary. Our justification is not fleeting, nor is it fragile. Because justification was both earned and gifted, earned and gifted by Jesus, it no longer depends on you. That means it cannot be broken, it cannot be removed, and it cannot fail. Now, we do mature over time. We become more aware of our need. We become, become more aware of God's goodness. And I want to show one more slide. Um, I don't know if I see it there. If you could go forward a little bit. It's the one with the, the crosses and the arrows. That one. You guys would have seen this three weeks ago, but I want to bring it back up. Here's where this connects to sturdiness and joy. Uh, that line as it um, diverges, that's the moment of conversion, conversion that says, I'm at a loss before God. Jesus, thank you for paying the fine. I trust you. And so that bottom arrow is our growing lifetime awareness, awareness of our own sin. As you mature as a Christian, you will think less highly of yourself. You won't think more highly. <laughs> as you mature as a Christian, you have a growing awareness of God's goodness and his holiness. And justification as Jesus' gift, it's propitiation that fills the gap between where you are and where God is. That's what justification is, but it is not dependent on you anymore. It's through faith Jesus steps in and he fills that gap. So what that means is the more we fully comprehend the distance between us and God, bizarrely, our joy increases. It's like totally counterintuitive. A Christian joy or a gospel joy increases in the face of sin and failure. Because rather than our sin and failure mounting up as debt or our wish list for what my self-improvement, rather than mounting up as those things, we instead rest in the generosity of Jesus. We rest in his freedom that he's given us. We regularly return to his love, right? This is when we go back to the courtroom and it's not, oh, Jesus, thanks for what you did yesterday. Now I'm gonna earn it. It's Jesus, no, judge, I'm innocent. I'm actually, I'm stepping out on this one. Jesus, I'm gonna worship you and love you. Thank you. 
That's what this is. And remember, he gave himself gladly in love. Gladly in love. So the cross is not primarily meant to make you feel somber and guilty. The cross is not meant to make you feel somber and guilty. Can the Holy Spirit use it in that way? Yes, it's a treasure. But that's not what it's primarily for. It is primarily so we know we are loved. Human beings who run around feeling somber and guilty don't look a whole lot like Christ. Human beings who luxuriate in the love of Jesus tend to look a lot like Christ. Tim Keller has this one word, or this one line. He says, God knows us to the bottom and he loves us to the top. Think about that in conjunction with that graph. He knows us to the bottom and he loves us to the top. And the only one surprised by your sin is you. We also experience freedom and intimacy. If you were here last week, we read Romans chapter 8 which simply says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so we get to go to our Father with freedom and intimacy because we have zero, how much? Zero fear of rejection because we're justified. We wear the righteousness of Jesus in the presence of God. Again, he's not a pirate like pretending it's not there. He sees it, but he's already given you the righteousness of Jesus. So we already know he set his mind on restoration, not condemnation. So when we sin, we don't run to isolation. We run to him and his presence. This is very hard for me. I isolate. But I'm preaching it because we need to hear it. Now, um, we partner with God in this process to be transformed. But it's in the joy of his loving presence. The joy of his loving presence. So we don't hide, we run to him. Now the last one is it results in humility and mission. Uh, would you look with me to Romans 3, verse 27? This is the last two lines of our, verse, or our, our passage for today. It says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. We hold... One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of a law? Do we earn God's love through our humility? No. <laughs> but because of the law of faith and the freedom we have, we just know we have no reason to boast. We hold one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you're familiar with Paul's other writings in Philippians chapter 3, he, he says that all that I have is rubbish compared to Christ. All of the goodness, all the good, the right things I've done, all of my zeal as a Pharisee, everything I've ever done and committed myself to is garbage compared to the righteousness of Jesus. So why would I bring that to the courtroom? Jesus is offering me his full righteousness. Why would I try to like throw my own into the mix? And what Paul then says is that because my righteousness is filth compared to Jesus's, I have zero reason to be proud or superior to anyone else. Because if it was not for Jesus, I would be in the, in the exact same boat. It's not saying you're in the same boat. You have the, like, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in you 
You have the righteousness of God proclaimed over you in Jesus Christ. You're not in the same boat as someone else, but you definitely don't have any superiority over them because of your righteousness. Now, because of this, our mission is no longer self-exaltation, but rather the offering of the exaltation of Christ. We join the mission of Christ because they don't have anything else to offer either. You don't have anything to offer? Neither do they but they need rescue just like we, right? So we go out with humility and mission. And here's where this gets really hard. It moves us outward even to those that we hate otherwise. My question with this is who then do you struggle with? Who do you struggle to love? Who do you naturally exclude? I have a hard time with people who've committed adultery. I have a hard time with people in the LGBTQ community. I have a hard time with people who are in the middle of addiction. I have a hard time with people who are overly political. I have a hard time with people who are overly angry. I have a hard time with husbands who aren't kind. I have a hard time with bad parents. Who do you have a hard time with? They don't have anything to offer Jesus, but he has a whole lot to offer them. And we don't have anything that raises us up above them. So we go out with humility and we go out with mission. Not with self-exaltation, but we preach Christ and Christ crucified. Now here's where we end. The one thing, if, if it's even possible to cap up the idea of justification with one thing, here's where I would like to end. I'd like to read... Um, Verse 23 and verse 24 to you again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's my one thing. Would you believe this? That we have all sinned you have no superiority over any other human being. Would you believe that? That's what Paul's writing. Do you believe that your redemption is through Jesus Christ alone? You didn't add anything to that picture, but gosh, he loves you. He's redeemed you. And you've received it by faith. That means as it's done, you can rest. You are received. You are redeemed. Would you receive this with trust and faith over the course of your lifetime? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege of dwelling on this all week long and realizing how frequently I justify myself. Um, thank you for the gift of your son. Like You planned this from day one to give yourself to people that were your enemies, to bring your message of reconciliation Jesus, thank you that we now are your sons and daughters. The fact that we have nothing to offer doesn't diminish us because you've raised us to be, to be heirs with you in your righteousness. We are now sons and daughters of the king with, of inestimable, inestimable value in your eyes. We are royalty because of your gift to us. Father, would you um, make us sturdy? Father, would you give us freedom and would you call us to humility and mission. Would you aid us, please? And, and Father, one more thing. Would you just 
bind us together in community, that we don't go out and work this out on our own, but we integrate into, whether it's gospel communities or friendships, whatever it is, we don't go it alone. We integrate with one another to follow you, to remind one another of you together. Amen.